I'm Mike Ravenscroft. And I'm Mike Leffer. And you're listening to Extreme Uncertainty, the temporary college dropout episode. Mr. Leffer. Mr. Ravenscroft. You have some news. I do. I am excited to announce that I've joined the team at Early Light Ventures here in Baltimore and D.C., where we invest in the best uh, underdogs and tenacious founders doing really interesting SaaS companies all across the country. Congratulations. Thank you. It's a fantastic fund. Yeah, I, I really enjoy working with Scott, Sam, Mark, and Cal. They're, they're really good people, really smart as well. But I hear... I hear you have some news. I do indeed have news. I have just joined the Dream Adventures team in Philadelphia as the startup success manager working with their health tech companies. Congratulations. If anybody's curious, the hashtag is hashtag VCs congratulating themselves. (laughs) And although I will truly miss... Uh, being in the D.C. region, I'm really looking forward to getting involved in the Philadelphia startup scene and uh, working with the fantastic portfolio companies that Dreamit has invested in. So just up the way on 95, not too far away. Um, it, it's it's close enough to hang out still, but 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 given that we're starting or both starting new jobs, you know, we probably are both thinking about benefits plans. That's right. Top of mind for any new hire is what is the benefits plan that you're going to choose? Leffer, let me ask you, what do you think about when you think about uh, selecting benefits plans? Well, I'd say healthcare, but I'm fortunate in that I, for now, at least get to use the VA insurance so I don't have to suffer through the process of trying to understand what the best benefits are for me and my family. Right. So for us mere mortals, i.e. those people who haven't served their country, um, <laughs> those of us. Um, it is uh, it is a hassle, um, and it's a hassle in in ways that we don't often think about. You know, when you go to the movie theater, it makes sense to look at the three sizes of Coca Cola and think small, medium, large. I'll take the medium, but it really doesn't make any sense to select your healthcare uh, or other benefits plans in that way. Uh, and the reality is that's what most uh, employees do. Uh, they look at um, the standard options uh, and they pick whatever one's in the middle. And they don't really think about how their personal healthcare situation or their family's healthcare situation might actually factor into that decision beyond some simple calculations that you might do on like the back of a napkin. And that's because choosing a benefits plan is really hard. Most HR departments don't understand um, really the benefits that are being rolled out to their employees. And even if they do, it's very hard to communicate that. It's hard to counsel an employee through uh, electing their benefits. And the truth is this situation leads to a whole lot of waste and a whole lot of bad decisions on the part of employees who are really just trying to do right by themselves and their families. And at the same time, employers want their employees to be choosing the right benefits plans for them. And insurance companies want employees to be choosing the right benefits for them because otherwise they're underwriting policies incorrectly. They're creating a whole lot of slack and waste in the system. uh, And they're not able to get good data uh, on what plans they actually should be underwriting. So if only there were some kind of solution for this problem, if only there was some kind of innovative, smart, hustling technology startup that could solve a problem as intractable as this, thankfully there is. I am pleased to introduce our guest today, Akash Magoon, 
Chief Technology Officer and co-founder of Naya. Naya is an insurance benefits experience and management platform that's powering employee engagement by personalizing benefits education. Since launching in 2019, Akash and his team have scaled Naya to serve dozens of national employers with customers and partners, including Guardian, Unum, and American Public Life. In January, they announced their Series A round of 11 million led by Felicis Ventures, and they are now rapidly scaling up operations from their New York City HQ. Akash was always interested in healthcare, and he spent most of his youth thinking he'd become a doctor. But growing up in a family of entrepreneurs, he developed an early interest in business. He started building technology platforms in his teens, and when he started at the University of Maryland, go Terps, he jumped into computer science. In classic startup fashion, he launched his first company in college, a software platform for clinical labs doing blood and urine-based drug tests, and dropped out to run the company. But don't worry, parents, he finished his degree after exiting the company. Akash talks to us about his entrepreneurial journey. He shares his thoughts on what it takes to build and scale a tech company, and what he thinks will happen to employee benefits in the coming years. Please enjoy our interview with Akash Magoon, CTO and co-founder of Naya. Akash, thank you so much for joining us today on Extreme Uncertainty. It's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Mike and Mike. So uh, let's start where we always start. What does Naya do? Wonderful. So Naya is a software company where we use data science and machine learning to really personalize the way that Americans choose and use their benefits and their insurance plans. Uh, picking insurance plans is really, really hard. Uh, in fact, um, st- st- statisticians and PhDs oftentimes only choose the correct plan 40% of the time. And we have the opportunity to, to help employees uh, across the country uh, find plans that are relevant to them given their, their background, their families, and their medical needs. Talk to us a little bit about this problem. Um, so, you know, most companies offer benefits to their employees. Uh, most people who have, like, healthcare get it through their uh, employer. Why is that difficult? Like, what, what's the problem there? So the biggest problem is um, majority of Americans get plans through their employers. And if you're working at a Fortune 500 company, um, you're typically offered uh, a set of eight to 10 different types of benefits. And within those benefits, you have anywhere between three to five plans. And so the, the different choices you have ends up being 40, 50, 60 different permutations and ends up being a pretty powerful and um, difficult decision on the employee. And so being able to choose plans that are not only relevant to you as a maybe a healthy young millennial versus a, a 55-year-old with three kids and a spouse with median, uh, a medium amount of debt, the types of plans that you should be on are totally different. And we understand that really well. The insurers understand that really well. Uh, but the end consumer, they never had the individualized, personalized experience that they've been able to enjoy, whether it's renting a movie on Netflix or buying a pair of socks on Amazon. Everything is so data-driven, so personalized, and uh, tuned to you as an end consumer. And um, the benefits industry and insurance in general, in our opinion, Uh, from that lens has been broken for so long. That's one that we're really excited to solve. And I got to ask, how did you make your way into the world of startups and founding Naya? That's a good question. I, growing up, I would say I was always very commercially minded, very entrepreneurial, just being around uh, my parents who ran small businesses, but also other extended family that I was, that was in the tech space. Um, And for the longest time I, I knew I wanted, or I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And early on in high school, I uh, worked at a, a nearby hospital in Baltimore, Johns Hopkins, as a, as a volunteer. 
quickly learned that uh, practicing medicine wasn't really exciting to me. Uh, but this was around the same time where I was learning about computers and learning about programming and uh, started going deeper in high school down learning programming languages, building websites, apps, started building things for different businesses uh, nearby where I live. Um, ended up studying at the University of Maryland um, where I focus on computer science, but I always had this itch that like healthcare was always exciting to me. And so everything I was thinking about in the classroom was always around how do I build tools, technologies, and things to impact the space that um, I was continuing learning about. Uh, in college is where I started my first business, which we were building a, a software for clinical labs that do blood and urine-based drug tests. And the goal and the pain point um, for these labs were they were conducting these um, tests on samples of blood. These samples were going through 40 or 50 different machines. Each machine was specialized on testing for one type of metabolite, which is maybe a drug concentrate. And this is really important for doctors before an operation to make sure that uh, patients were taking the drugs that they should be and also not taking the drugs that they shouldn't be um, for purposes of making sure that a successful operation uh, was going to go through. And so ended up dropping out of school for a short amount of time, pursued that company full time. Um, and after that, went to go join a company at, uh, sorry, went to go join a team at Amazon Web Services, focused on helping Fortune 500 move, Fortune 500 healthcare companies move to the cloud. And slowly but surely got back into the startup world. Um, I met my co-founder at, at the company that we were both together at right before starting Naya, which was Enigma Technologies. And at Enigma, we were building data solutions for large insurers to help them underwrite and uh, run actuarial tables for offering medical plans and voluntary benefits to large employers. And that's where we really learned about the consumer pain point, where the folks at the top of the food chain, the underwriters, and the actuarial scientists at these insurance companies, we were able to make them 5 to 10% smarter using data, uh, which is really hard to do because these people are already so smart. Um, and through that process, saw this massive, massive problem on and how Americans choose and use their insurance plans. Backing up a little bit, I think you're the first founder we've had on the podcast who's actually fit into that stereotype where they've dropped out of college to start a company. So I got to ask, what did your parents think? So I will, um, I will copy out that by after I was at Amazon, I ended up actually going back to school and I did successfully graduate um, uh, with a degree in computer science and focused on math as well. So uh, I can say I'm a college graduate, but it was more of a short term thing where I knew that the problem we were solving at the time was we were in the right, um, in the right timeline. We had a clear opportunity and it was one that if we didn't pursue now, some other player would come to the space and do what we wanted to do. So it, uh, it felt good. It felt liberating for a short amount of time. Um, in fact, I would probably, a lot of my friends that are still, you know, that are younger going to college, I actually do um, oftentimes recommend them to take a gap year because when you're in the classroom for so long and you're just learning things in such a theoretical way, it's so hard to apply what you're learning in the classroom to outside things. And so you take a gap year, you learn about, you know, the world and other opportunities. You come back to finish your last year, your last two years, maybe for a master's degree, you end up resonating so much more with the material, in my opinion. And that was definitely true for when I came back to the University of Maryland and finished my last year. Um, I, I couldn't recommend that more often to, to friends and other people that uh, reach out for advice. It's not a bad way to spend it a gap year. I mean, you know, better than like working at a cafe or something. <laughs> so which, which company was that that you dropped out to start? Uh, it was called LIS Labs. And so what happened with that company? 
Um, we ended up having a, a, a very, very small, and emphasis on small, exit um, into a, a, another software company that's running it and maintaining it for the labs that we were serving. So how long did you do that for? That was um, right around two years. Two years. So what did you learn in that time that you think set you up for success with Naya, with doing it again? Um, I, I was definitely really naive back then. And a lot of the learnings that I was taking away from building that business while still in college, 18, 19 years old, um, a lot of those learnings, I actually didn't know there were learnings until I went to go join other startups and see how they approach things and how they're approaching things in one way versus the other. Um, and ultimately, I think focus is, is a big thing where a lot of companies, especially as they raise venture funding, seed round, series A round, series B, they end up having their core business model or the core problem they were initially solving. And now with this influx of capital, they end up trying to tackle a couple of different things. One of the things that on my first business we were really um, certain about was just maintaining focus on that one problem we're solving, mostly because we knew how large the TAM was. And I feel like every business that is able to raise a decent sized seed or series A around, the TAM's fairly large. That's why you had institutional investors investing in you. But the, um, the fallback that I see way too often is just taking that cash and putting your, your eggs in too many baskets. How, how did you manage this time? Because you've raised, what, 10, 14 million dollars, somewhere in that range? Yeah, right around 14 million dollars to date. And how do you keep yourself focused with that? Um, it really comes down to both um, building and scaling successful engineering and software and product teams, as well as aligning your sales teams as far as what's being built, who you're building it for, and why you are particularly building them. And right now, as a company at Naya, we're really focused on two problems. Um, the first problem is uh, helping people during open enrollment, which is the two to three week a year period. Uh, sorry, the two to three week uh, year period where you're picking your plans. We help the individual pick a plan. And if that process requires a master's degree to figure out, then actually using your plans for the other 50, year, 50 weeks of the year, in our opinion, requires a PhD. And that's where the second half of our platform is focused on, is helping employees use their benefits, engage with them, and find cost savings. And on the actual engagement side for the 50 weeks of the year, I feel like you have three different types of users. You have the millennial who doesn't think they need to go to the doctors. You have the 50-year-old the power user that um, is, goes to the doctor every week, has kids, and um, is engaging with their benefits very often, and somebody in the middle. And so... That's what our product really focused on is engaging the people that don't use their benefits, but making sure we drive cost savings for the other people. And going back to your question around driving focus, one of the things that is very important to us is having this common data infrastructure between both of our products, where when people select plans, they pick plans that we recommend, they end up going and using them, and then we're there along the year to ride along that journey to make sure they're using their plans in the right way. For year two, year three, for user N plus one and N plus two, they're getting a much better data-driven experience because all that data and all that experience and scar tissue comes back and feeds into our model. And so from a focus standpoint, we want to make sure that um, our data infrastructure team and everything that's being housed from um, both the data sources we collect externally, but also internally, um, that we're not straying away from that. And we don't have different teams solving for different problems because that's, at least I've seen this in the past working at big companies, you end up having these disparate teams who are solving overlapping problems, but they're not solving that solving them in a in a one 
um, in one approach where it scales. It's it's oftentimes throwing darts at a dartboard and um, people solving for different problems that are in this big healthcare space. And um, healthcare DOS is if you if you have an Excel spreadsheet and you have a X by Y and you have a bunch of different ideas, a lot of companies like throw darts at the dartboard, just picking one um, after another to solve. And there's so many problems to solve with literally an unlimited target market and a limited TAM and just being mindful around what can we as a company be best at as opposed to what can we be good at? Uh, picking the bets that we can be best at, even if we fail at them, uh, will be worthy bets that we'll ultimately learn from and use that to continue building and fleshing out more product. Um, all of that coupled with being very um, feedback driven in a space like ours, getting that feedback loop is very hard because it's usually so slow. We want to be as close as possible to the end consumer because if we're able to do that, we're going to build a, a product that gets the best engagement possible. I wanted to go back to something you mentioned earlier. So it sounds like healthcare was sort of a through line of interest for you. So, you know, decided you didn't want to be a doctor, but you were working on these different technology platforms that were sort of healthcare related. Um, but I'm curious how you found this problem specifically. You know, what was it that you and your co-founder realized and how did you realize it that this was, hey, in one of the biggest industries in the world, there's this gaping problem that nobody's actually figured out how to address yet. Yeah, it really comes back to um, what we were doing in our former lives. We were, uh, again, empowering the insurers, making sure that when you are an underwriter at a, at a large dental insurer or underwriter at a medical insurer, your main job is when you're working with a large employer that you're offering various plan designs such that um, it's, not, it's like the opposite of one size fits all. You have enough different types of permutations of these plans so that um, they are tailored to maybe the millennial that's, that's really healthy compared to the, somebody else that might be older and, and have different needs. And so, Mike, imagine that you were, you were head of HR at Coca-Cola. You have 200,000 employees in the United States. And on one end of the spectrum, you have software engineers living in cities like New York and San Francisco, 27 years of age on average, um, 1.5 times the, the median income of those cities, very little debt. The types of plans that they should be on are very different than maybe the average fulfillment center worker that's 47 living in the suburbs of Midwestern cities like Omaha, Nebraska and Denver, Colorado, uh, 2.5 kids. Uh, pretty decent debt living in living in houses they own as opposed to rent. Um, this these are the workflows that we were helping the underwriters optimize, and they again understood that really well. And what we saw time and time again was um, most Americans were selecting their plans similar to how most millennials select fine wine, where you you spend more money on something, you think you're getting something better. That's not often the case. And if you start thinking about selecting these plans in a very financially driven way. Um, as opposed to like a health or a sentiment driven way, you can end up saving money. And really like the, the biggest problem is most Americans are overpaying on healthcare. And that's um, one of the biggest causes of that in addition to like the administrative burden is being on the wrong plans. What, what do you think the role of government versus enterprise is in fixing the healthcare problems that America has? Ooh, that's a, that's an interesting one. I would say, Personally, seeing um, all of the great work that Obamacare and the American Healthcare Act did on standardizing a lot of things in the individual marketplace, um, I think we're leaps and bounds ahead of where we were maybe 
15 or 20 years ago. And so in the individual market, um, there's a set of rules and guidance in place for each state where insurers have to offer plans that meet certain uh, requirements, meet certain prices, and uh, states oftentimes for people in a different, in, in the lower demographic and wealth brackets have to reimburse a lot of the expenses. Because there's so much standardiz standardization around that, we've seen um, the number of people that get insurance through, their, through the individual marketplace has skyrocketed, and we're at like a much higher um, total insurer population that we, we were once before. Um, that same set of standardization hasn't occurred in the larger market where um, are particularly employer driven. And so whether you are an employee at Google or an employee at Home Depot, um, you're, you're getting underwritten um, in a very uh, one-off way, depending on the risk of that population, right? Because if Mike, if you're working at Home Depot, you're gonna get you're gonna be paying the same price as the other people that you're working with versus Google, which might be a more healthy population. And I think bringing that same level of standardization to the entire market uh, will allow for more transparency, um, both on the cost side, but also on the selection side, and ultimately uh, put the the consumer as the north star. Which that's really part of our mission, which is making in everything we do, um, even though we're working with so many different stakeholders across the industry, the consumer is always always the north star, and the government has a important role to play in that um and just for the record that's the hardest questions ever been asked on the extreme uncertainty podcast how how to fix the healthcare system well done Luffer. <laughs> really unfair <laughs> but that was a really good answer well and, and and along with what you were saying there akash one of the other things that's happening in insurance um and this is you know total outside perspective just seeing you know some of the trends in the marketplace it seems like there's a now a a more, what's the word? Not like holistic approach to benefits, but there, there's this sort of concept of like alternative benefits and, you know, sort of new ways of thinking about uh, employee benefits. And I'm curious how that might factor into your business now or in the future. Yeah. Um, well, one of the, the biggest themes of medical plans over the last five to 10 years is the advent of the high deductible health plan. And it typically has a pretty bad rap because uh, people that, might be living paycheck to paycheck or um, aren't as, as um, financially well off as maybe some people who the PPO plans are worth, right? Uh, these high deductible plans have, to have the ability to put people in a bit of a medical bankruptcy, right? Medical, medical costs are the leading, the leading drivers of bankruptcy in the United States. And um, as a result of that, we've seen this huge growth in, in voluntary benefits and fringe benefits and, and worksite benefits. Something as simple as an accident plan or a hospital indemnity plan um, are really padding tools to pad your deductible. And we have a really important role to play in that because in addition to the data science, in addition to the machine learning driven recommendations, we and employers that we work with view NIA as um, a place that their employees can receive a bit of education on what are all the benefits out there, right? Um, and time and time again, we'll see large employers who have a really, really large benefits budget, and they're spending a lot of money on the, the Cadillacs and the Porsches of, of plans available. They're not seeing that level of um, employee satisfaction of those benefits. And one of the biggest reasons is they don't fully understand what's being offered, why it's being offered, and how they can use it for their lifestyles. And so we do have a very important role to play in that. And so you've done a lot over your, your career so far. What's been the most memorable experience with any of the companies you've done? Um, that's, that's, that's a hard one. I would say this past year in, 
in 2020 has truly been um, has truly been a a roller coaster ride. We we um, for sake of timeline, we started the company in November of 2019. So uh, two Thanksgivings ago, we joined an accelerator program in January of 2020 in New York City called the Entrepreneurs Roundtable Accelerator, which is supposed to be a program from January uh, of last year to the end of May that ended up going remote as a result of the the macro health climate. And at the end of that program in May, we raised our seed round. And that's really when we were going to market was this past May. And literally over the summer, Q2, Q3, Q4, we we crushed it on on all sides of the business. Um, And that seed round was a $2.7 million seed round. And and literally 11 weeks later, we were able to grow our, our revenue um, 10, 10 to 20 X fold, uh, raise our, our series a, um, again, four months later. And, uh, that's really a testament to the product we were able to build the markets we were able to serve and just the way that we are trying to empower, um, the consumer, no matter whether they are our blue collar employee or a white collar employee or what industry they might, they might've been in. That's really been probably the most rewarding thing in my career so far is just building a product that again, has a commercial lens to it. It's, 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 um, we're building a rapidly growing company, but at the same time, empowering people and having that, that mission driven, um, view of our product that really is, in my opinion, what makes our team so excited to get up every morning and build what we're building. And that's a pretty rapid clip for doing a a venture raise. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit about what that was like? So, 11, 12 weeks after your seed, ready for a Series A, and you raised from West Coast VCs. Um, talk us through what that was like. Really, when we raised our, our seed round, um, we we were lucky enough to get um, a backing by Social Leverage, which is a pretty cool seed fund uh, based out of the West Coast. They invested in companies like Robinhood uh, very, very early on, which in a way has a similar view on the problem they're solving that we do, which is taking some really, really hard consumer transaction and and uh, making it easy for the common man. On their side, it was on stocks, and for us, it's insurance. And uh, we were also lucky enough to get some insurers to participate in in our seed round as well, which allowed us to accelerate our, our commercial traction with them. And just hitting all the, the KPIs and the growth points we wanted to see uh, before we could go and grow and raise our Series A, uh, I'll be the first to admit that we didn't think that we would do it in, in 10 to 12 weeks after the seed. Um, but seeing that growth rate showing uh, the user engagement and having you know, the, the proof in the pudding um, as opposed to just showing the cool tech we were building really helped us. And the, the thought process there was, all right, maybe we could wait 8, 12, uh, even 18 more months before we wanted to go and raise again. We had the cash to, to be around for a very long time. Um, being able to bring the money in uh, and scale our team pretty pretty rapidly um, will allow us to really invest in all the right markets that we want to and make sure that no other bigger competitor who sees that we've found this really nice niche in the market to to drive impact, nobody else can come in and do that. And we just need our resources to fuel that fire. Uh, and make so now, um, now we, we uh, did the $11 million Series A round led by Felicis Ventures, they were pretty inspiring. Um, they're a small fund, very tight knit, and um, their their philosophy of investing in um, industries that are pretty agnostic to them, but insurance being one that was very very exciting to them. 
made a really good partnership and seeing all the great work they've done in other industries that are corollary TARs that are very, very data heavy businesses like Plaid and Komodo Health and Hippo Insurance uh, really got us motivated to, to working with them and couldn't be couldn't be more happy to, to be teamed up with them. Yes, you made it sound really easy. What's been the biggest challenge of all of this so far? Um, the biggest challenge is it's um, every every hurdle we face when you look at it, it just looks like a huge um, like mountainous structure of the different things we need to go and, and battle, whether it's on uh, the product side, whether it's on the data science side, whether it's on sales and commercial, right? We're literally selling into four different stakeholders um, every day, whether it's insurance companies or brokers or um, HR platforms like ADP and Workday or directly to the HR leader of a, of a, a large employer. And so when you look ahead, um, it might seem like there's so much you need to do to hit your next milestone. And the approach we've always taken is um, you, lay, you lay a brick a day and soon enough you'll have a, you'll have a house. And that's, a, that's definitely not something I've created uh, or I came up with. It's something that I've seen other people uh, say that before and I take, take that as inspiration. But it's, it ends up being most of the challenges are like psychological challenges, I would say. And it's just um, keeping your head down, doing the right things investing in the right places and nothing's going to happen overnight you you um you make the right decisions uh, day over day and soon enough you'll you'll get the rewards for them but it's really just keeping your heads down focusing not getting um demotivated and making sure that you have ideas you commit to those ideas as a team and then you build fast towards them and not letting any egos come in the way when you get data from the industry from the marketplace from your users that Maybe your initial idea was wrong. That's most people would treat that as a failure. I treat that as a, a success because you can quickly learn from it and iterate. So, never never build your roadmap for any more than three to six months out because um, the fact that you're going to learn quicker than you can build and using that feedback to make sure you're building the right things is the best thing you can do. Very well said. I'm curious, what's what's demotivating? Like in the psychological challenges, um, things, I don't know. I mean, every, every week we'll have, every week you'll have like the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, but, um, you have to make sure that when you, when you have that big win, you don't, you don't celebrate too much. At least that's my, the way I take it. And when you have the sure. the loss, you don't end up uh, mourning too much, but the things that can be demotivating is when you're working with a, with, with an engineer or team for three days straight, building this new feature that you think. Uh, you need to c- go close like a big customer. You end up demoing it to them, and they're not ex- as excited about it. Or you um, you go live with an employer, and something breaks, or you have a big bug in the system, and you got to go do that midnight deployment to fix something. Like those things end up being, um, and they're not necessarily demotivating, demotivating to me. That's what I'm saying is, you need to make sure that you have that um, that psychological rigidity to to get back up when you fall. But that's the really only thing I see coming between um, a lot of like entrepreneurs that have, I mean, even me in the past, but a lot of entrepreneurs that I've seen is just um, getting um, getting scared away about something just because there's a lot of challenges, just making sure that you get the right resources, making sure you can stay around long enough, whether it's funding or getting customers or, or keeping yourself afloat. Um, that's one part of it, but then making sure that you don't give up is, is the second part of it. Given how fast you guys have scaled in such a short period of time, um, I would imagine there have been challenges around there too, uh, just as far as managing growth. Just curious if you have any advice for founders on that specifically. You know, like raising 10 million bucks 
changes the dynamics. It changes what you can do. It changes, um, you know, who you can hire. But there's also, right, like you're maintaining your culture. You have to make sure you're building in a way that's responsible, like you said. I'm just curious what advice you have for founders uh, for managing that. Yeah, this is definitely, for me and my co-founder, our first time really building this like rapidly growing and scaling team in the way that we have. Uh, fast forwarding, or sorry, rewinding maybe 90 or 100 days, we were six people. It was three engineers, two salespeople, and, and a product leader. Um, 30 days later, I think we grew our engineering team by three more. And then now um, we are right around like 30 people. And the biggest difference and the biggest thing I've seen on that, and one that I think founders need to be cognizant about when they're first starting up their company is if things go right, quite literally every 90 to 120 days, your role is going to change pretty dramatically. And so even a couple months ago, probably my biggest use of time was I was heads down working with engineers coding every day and, and things that would come up would be decisions that like the whole team would make together. And part of scaling your culture, I think, is empowering others to make decisions on their own, um, but putting those core values in place that you have trust in them that, all right, if they're making these decisions by putting the consumer first, um, by using the data that they're getting from the field and thinking through things in a, in a holistic way, you know that whatever decision they make was a decision that you would make personally, but when you when you grow from five to 30, you can't be there for every decision. And, and that's part of like scaling the culture, number one. And the number two is just figuring out like how to, um, how and when to put structure in, right? Because the operations around building a team is really hard. Um, and you could put big company structure in place, that's gonna slow you down. You could put no structure in place and you can have people running all, all over the place. And so having that, that back and forth and that healthy balance around all right, what is the right structure um, in terms of teams, reporting, uh, how often do you deploy software, how, how do you plan for the next two weeks, for the next four weeks, how do you run sprints? Um, there's ways that um, have really uh, that will work for a big company, there's ways that will work for a small company, and making sure that you um, try things out and you make uh, employees empowered in helping make those decisions and helping them be leaders of the, of the things that they're working on has really worked for us. That's fantastic advice. Last question we always like to ask, <clears throat> last question we always like to wrap up with, what's your favorite book or podcast and why? Um, I would say, uh, I'll give two answers. The first one, uh, similar to this topic we were just on, was um, around culture. And I've been reading um, the book from Reed Hastings called uh, No Rules Rules. And really good book on how he scaled Netflix uh, with his, his co-founding team. Um, the, the, the different things on how the, the team like scaled over time, but particularly focused on there's not always going to be rules on how to do things. If you're thinking outside of the box, if you're appending a stodgy industry uh, like the one that we're in, but also the one that Netflix was in, there's a lot of new things. And um, his work and, and his views on, on how he's built not only this, his, his current company, but his previous ones, Reed Hastings, um, has been a true inspiration for me. And then the on the podcast side, uh, obviously y your podcast is, is pretty inspiring with some of the recent guests <laughs> you you've had. You don't have to say. Um, no, it's always it's always great to see Baltimore, Maryland, DC, Virginia um, entrepreneurs doing off and doing great things. But particularly, I've really enjoyed um, Andrews and Horowitz podcast over the last like six to twelve months, mostly because a lot of VCs have podcasts and they're typically very. Um, funding oriented, uh, but Andreessen has been particularly 
like healthcare oriented, uh, bringing in healthcare leaders from both big enterprise and startups that they've invested in, and just the level of detail they go in. Um, it might it might seem dry at times to most people that I've recommended it to, but it just that that level of insight that you can get from from things they talk about I haven't seen anywhere else. Um, and then occasionally just the podcast where the interview founders about their story is always pretty inspiring as well. So how I built this from NPR is, is always a, um, a one that gets me pretty excited when I, when I get, get a chance to listen. That's awesome. I'm sure you will be on that podcast within the next five years. So just, you gotta, you gotta book it now, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure we'll be hearing about you guys. Um, I really, I really appreciate it. Um, this has been a lot of fun to, to be on. Thanks for having me. And, uh, couldn't be more excited to, to keep, uh, keep up to date with the, the latest episodes on, on extreme uncertainty. Thanks so much, Akash, for joining us. It was a real pleasure. Best of luck with everything you're building at Naya. Thank you. Akash Magoon, CTO and co-founder of Naya. Making the healthcare benefits world more transparent, one employee at a time. Well, if I needed help picking my benefits, I would certainly force early late ventures to get Naya. Well, Scott, if you're listening, there's the plug. Thanks to Akash for taking the time to chat with us. You can check out his company at naya.com. Our episode was edited by me. Our music is by Reactor Productions, and our logo is by Priya Arunashalam. You can follow us on Twitter at extreme underscore pod. And remember, embrace the uncertainty. Thanks for listening. <laughs>